You're listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. In this podcast series, we bring international affairs expertise from Stanford's campus straight to you. The tension between the U.S. and North Korea is one of the most urgent problems we face. In May 2017, a panel of experts assembled at FSI to address the issue. They were hosted by two of our research centers, the Center for International Security and Cooperation, or CSAC, and the Shorenstein Asia-Pacific Research Center, known as APARC. The panelists were Giwak Shin, director of APARC, Kathleen Stevens, former U.S. ambassador to South Korea and currently the William J. Perry Distinguished Fellow at FSI, James Person, director of the Hyundai Motor Korea Foundation Center for Korean History and Public Policy at the Wilson Center, and Katarina Zellweger, a humanitarian aid expert on North Korea and a former visiting scholar at both CSAC and APARC. Professor Shin opens the panel discussion. And as you know, uh, we've been discussing about this North Korean issue for the last uh, 20 plus years. And we have done so many uh, talks, uh, conferences, uh, events, and discussions. But whenever I do, or we do, I feel like uh, we are you know, back to square one. <laughs> so hopefully, uh, we can. Uh, try to make certain progress uh, today's uh, conversation. But as you know, you know current situation is not uh, great. Uh, you know, North Korea continues to develop uh, the nuclear and uh, missile programs. And I think over the last uh, couple of weeks, uh, they tested like uh, two or three more missiles, right? And we already know that they conducted uh, five uh, nuclear tests and continue to test uh, missiles. And now we are quite concerned that uh, they might uh, develop uh, ICBM uh, reaching uh, the continental United States uh, within maybe in a few years or five years. And there's no indication that they will stop uh, either program. On the other hand, uh, our president, uh, Trump, uh, has been sending uh, confusing and conflicting messages uh, regarding the North Korean problem. And unfortunately, we don't really have any key personnel, either at the State Department or uh, Department of uh, Defense. And also, we still don't know who will be uh, representing U.S. in Seoul. Uh, the U.S. ambassador left uh, Korea like January, and the position has been you know, vacant. So while uh, North Korea is escalating tensions on the peninsula, uh, I'm not sure whether the U.S. has been well prepared to respond. Okay, South Korea just has a new president, uh, and there is a higher expectation for more engagement uh, with, the, with North Korea uh, by the new government, but we're not sure you know, how, uh, if they do. And with China, the uh, U.S. has been pushing you know, China to solve the North Korean problem, but also there's doubt that uh, uh, China may not make any fundamental uh, change in their policy towards North Korea. So today we'll uh, address the North Korean issues from multiple angles, not only from the U.S. and uh, South Korean perspective, but also from the North Korean 
and Chinese views. So I'm very happy to uh, introduce an excellent lineup of uh, experts. So to my right, uh, Ambassador Kathy uh, Stevens. Uh, as you know, uh, she has had a distinguished career uh, in the American uh, diplomacy, uh, including uh, you know, her post as uh, American ambassador to Seoul uh, a few years ago. And I think still in Korea, she is remembered the most, I don't know, favorable you know, ambassador among uh, American uh, officials. And uh, she is with us at APAC uh, as a uh, Bill Perry uh, Fellow uh, in Korean Studies. So Kathy will be speaking on uh, the New South Korean government thinking and position on North Korea uh, in the larger context of U.S.-Korea uh, alliance. Okay, then we have uh, uh, James Person uh, from uh, Washington. He's now the director of the Hyundai Motor Korea Foundation uh, Center for Korean uh, History and Public Policy at the Wilson Center. And among other things, uh, he has led the North Korea International uh, Documentation Project that has been very well received among academics and, and policymakers. So he'll offer his perspective on the North Korean leadership in the current uh, crisis. Uh, including a broader historical context, uh, as well as uh, thoughts on the China-North uh, Korea relationship. The last but not uh, least, Kathy uh, uh, Zellweger, uh, who was a fellow uh, or visiting fellow at CSEC. Uh, she was also a visiting fellow at our center uh, some years ago. Kathy uh, has spent a uh, you know, long time uh, in working on uh, humanitarian, humanitarian work uh, in North Korea, and she actually lived in North Korea uh, for many years. So today she'll share uh, with us her view on the impact of the current crisis on the North Korean people and how sanctions and changes in Chinese trade are affecting them. So once again, uh, each speaker will talk for about 10 minutes, and then uh, I'll lead some our discussion among our panelists, and then we'll open to uh, to, to the floor for Q&A. So, Kathy. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Keo. Thank you very much for the introduction and for your leadership, and David, for your leadership, and thank you for all being here today. I am uh, reminded as I look at all of you and some familiar faces and some, some new acquaintances that uh, <laughs> this is one of the reasons I'm so glad to be at Stanford. I mean, the day after Memorial Day, we get a turnout like this for a uh, a subject uh, uh, like this, uh, and I really appreciate not so much the quantity as the quality and the variety of the voices here, and I really look forward to a very lively discussion today. Um, I have been asked to talk about the South, per South Korean perspective on the title of this panel, uh, The North Korea Crisis, and actually one thing I was thinking about is, is uh, I don't think there are a lot of panels, and I've been in Korea uh, uh, 40 odd years off and on, living there for about 11 of those years. Um, there are not too many panels where they actually call it the North Korea crisis because it's, it's been a situation, if you like, since, the, since 1953, since the signing of an armistice, of course, which Sigmund Rhee did not sign up to because uh, he wanted to continue to uh, work for the reunification of Korea. Uh, but in any event, it's, uh, it's, an, it's, an, it's, a, it's been an ongoing well, existential threat in many ways to, uh, uh, to South Korea uh, and uh, something that has, has evolved. 
Uh, I was back in Korea in late April and early May uh, with the Stanford group, and I have to say there was a bit of a sense of crisis uh, there then, although most people were focused on mostly on the upcoming presidential election. Uh, but that crisis had a bit to do with uh, nervousness that uh, there was going to be some military action uh, uh, mm -hmm. uh, led by the United States uh, with the uh, uh, reported and then uh, uh, amended mo uh, reports of uh, U.S. Uh, uh, movement of military uh, assets and so on. Uh, and it was one of those few times I can think of uh, over the many years that I've been in and out of Korea where a few Koreans sort of said, yeah, I actually did think about what would it look like you know, to actually have um, uh, uh, military conflict uh, here and what would I do about it. But, you know, over the years people have been, you know, gotten pretty used to dealing with it. I think uh, people here are often uh, surprised that South Koreans seem so, you know, blasé about what um, what is a big threat. Um, uh, certainly uh, uh, throughout the crises, uh, you know, people learned to live with them. Somebody said to me, actually, when I came back, didn't you find Koreans were really, really stressed out by what was going on? I said, South Koreans are the most stressed out people in the world, but it has to do with life in South Korea. Uh, and uh, they've kind of gotten, as I said, sort of used to, to North Korea. All that said, how have they dealt with it? Certainly successive South Korean governments have depended on a very robust defense alliance with the United States and at various times under every Korean president, I would emphasize both pre- and post-democratization and from across the political spectrum, have attempted various kinds of inter-Korean communication, back-channel, what do you think we're like, uh, reconciliation, rapprochement, and so on. Uh, these efforts have uh, not obviously brought the results uh, uh, that were hoped for, but uh, we can expect them to continue. I think the other point I would make about, just before talking about the new Moon government, about public opinion in, in South Korea, is I think it remains divided over, over North Korea. Um, some think that uh, uh, maximum pressure uh, or even military force to bring about collapse and reunification is in the end the only way that this is going to be resolved. I think that's a minority of the population, but that is certainly a very deeply held view among some others. Uh, think that uh, it's worth it to try to lower tensions um, through dialogue, assistance, gradual opening. Uh, and even if uh, there is more skepticism in some camps, given the uh, uh, disappointing experiences of uh, uh, some of the, of the sunshine years, uh, that even if it doesn't resolve problems, at least it's a way to manage them and to uh, lower not only tensions but risk. Um, when it comes to North Korea's uh, accelerated and growing nuclear and missile capabilities, uh, which is, I think, what we're kind of focused on and what we think about more when we think about the North Korea crisis today. Um, there is a humanitarian element, too, which I'm sure Kathy will talk about. Um, I think attitudes in South Korea have evolved and are still evolving. Uh, I think in the 90s, uh, uh, the, it was seen as mostly something the U.S. Would, would kind of manage, and that was the, the agreed framework, of course, was a bilateral agreement between the U.S. and the DPRK, funded and supported by South Korea, Japan, and the EU, but very much a bilateral uh, kind of issue, and that's kind of the way Pyongyang wanted it, too. Uh, I think through those years, and I, I'm not going to go through all the history here, I've got, but uh, through those years, uh, I think many South Koreans, I heard this on many occasions, even up to the last few years, saw North Korea's nuclear program as mostly a kind of a bargaining chip, 
Uh, I'd heard many South Koreans say, well, they would never use it against us. You know, they've already got their artillery. They can take out Seoul with that. Um, this, is a, this is a larger strategic deterrent and or bargaining chip. I do think that South Koreans are, le are less sanguine about it now. I think they recognize that, and I would agree with this anyway, I'd say that Kim Jong-un uh, has, uh, I think, demonstrated a, a real doubling down uh, on the uh, development of a, uh, uh, a capability, uh, including an intercontinental ballistic capability, uh, that uh, uh, South Koreans recognize uh, is affecting uh, uh, U.S. strategic calculations uh, and in a way that has huge uh, potential ramifications for South Korea as well. But in the midst of all that, I just wanted to say again, the, big, the biggest issue in South Korea over the last six months has been its own domestic politics. South Korea does have a new president, of course, uh, Moon Jae-in, who is from the progressive-slash-liberal party in Korea, the Democratic Party. Um, he's only been in office uh, for three weeks, less than three weeks, I guess. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he was elected three weeks ago today. There was a poll, Gallup poll, if it matters, done last week in Korea uh, on May 23rd, May 25th, I think, and it showed, this is numbers anybody would like, that even though Moon received uh, only 41% of the popular vote in a, uh, a multi-party race, he won by a healthy margin, but uh, as of last week, 88% of the respondents in South Korea think positively about Moon. Mm -hmm. Expectations are very high. Uh, another question that was asked in the polls is, which country is most important, I guess other than South Korea, I guess implicitly maybe, maybe not, in establishing peace on the Korean Peninsula? 55% said the U.S. was the most important, and then China at 36%. And then they were asked about leaders of these countries, uh, and 24% uh, uh, had a favorable impression of Xi Jinping, uh, and this is probably kind of low, but, but not unexpected, given the mm -hmm. kinds of pressures that uh, China has put on South Korea in recent months, uh, including de facto sanctions uh, uh, over the uh, deployment of the U.S. anti-missile uh, program, the THAAD program. 9% uh, had a favorable impression of President Trump. Uh, he was uh, bested by Mr. Putin, who has a 13% favorable rating. Um, so these are some of the challenges that I think uh, President Moon faces uh, as he uh, as he approaches the say the, the dual and connected issues of his North Korea policy and U.S. Uh, South Korean relations. Now, President Moon won on a platform that had more to do with South Korea's uh, domestic issues, economic, uh, inequality issues, uh, corruption issues, uh, than foreign policy or North Korea. Uh, but of course, uh, his, his political lineage is clearly the sunshine policy of Kim Dae-jung and No Mu-hyun. He was uh, uh, No Mu-hyun's uh, chief of staff. Uh, and during the campaign, uh, Moon Jae-in did pledge uh, to honor that legacy, uh, even while recognizing that conditions on the Korean Peninsula uh, and the stance of North Korea has changed. Uh, President Moon has moved a lot faster than President Trump in appointing <laughs> officials uh, in the uh, Blue House and elsewhere. Uh, certainly in the Blue House in particular, they have their experience is in, not surprisingly, in the Sunshine Policy and implementing that of Kim Dae-jung and No Mu-hyun administration. And I do think there, there is and will continue to be a strong push from within the administration to open up a stronger north-south inter-Korean element to the North Korea policy. I do think it's interesting that his new foreign minister designate, she has not yet been uh, uh, confirmed, uh, does not come from the tradition of 
of North Korea uh, policy, U.S. Uh, uh, ROK alliance management uh, policy. She comes from multilateral affairs and actually out of the U.N. Uh, and I would also make the point that uh, Moon supporters, and uh, uh, many come from now a younger generation, and by younger I, I, I mean uh, uh, those in their 20s and 30s now, and it's my own view, I don't have polling to back this up, although I think I could probably find some, that, um, that these, this younger generation and those who were out on the streets uh, 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 calling for change in Korea's uh, own demo- South Korea's democracy uh, may have somewhat different views in so- of, of North Korea than even the somewhat older progressives, uh, that uh, they have been shaped by the, uh, some of the crises of recent years, including the, the sinking of the, uh, uh, the South Korean ship, the Chonan, the shelling of Yongpyong Island. I was called the, the, the first uh, uh, crisis in South Korea having to do with North Korea that was caught on smartphones, I always say, as I saw people watching almost lifetime video of the shells coming down on a South Korean island. Um, so I, I, I think that the, the mix, if you like, of the progressive camp is, we'll see, is maybe a little bit different than what it was 10 or 15 years ago in South Korea. Uh, I, I think it's pretty clear, and we've already seen some signs, uh, that uh, uh, President Moon will want to you know, start on this, this effort to put his own stamp on, on uh, policy towards North Korea with the restarting of humanitarian work. Uh, he has said and made clear that he wants to find ways of doing that does not impinge or violate uh, existing international sanctions, uh, to which uh, the ROK, of course, has signed up. Uh, but uh, virtually all humanitarian exchanges had been suspended by the previous Park Geun-hye government after the January six, uh, 2016 nuclear test. But last Friday, just uh, before our long weekend, the, um, uh, the South Korean Unification Ministry uh, approved a plan by one South Korean NGO, the Korea Sharing Movement, uh, to uh, have some initial contact. Now, this depends, on, of course, how Pyongyang responds, but if they respond, there could be a trip by them as early as uh, uh, in uh, June to uh, talk about an initial project, for example, on malaria. Uh, the Ministry of Unification, which is the ministry that handles these kinds of, on a bureaucratic level, uh, requests, is reviewing 19 other civic groups' requests for approval in the area of development exchanges uh, as well, according to the press. Um, something has gotten a lot of attention is uh, whether and when uh, uh, President Moon might move towards something he said he, he wanted to do, and that's the reopening of the Kaesong Industrial Park, which is kind of the last big project, obviously, inter-Korean project to close, uh, uh, by Park Geun-hye uh, uh, about a year or so ago. It wasn't so long ago. Um, my own view, but I'd easily be wrong, is, is, is that he's probably not going to make that the first thing he does, but I think we'll have to watch and see how quickly he wants to try to look into that and also what the North Korean reaction would be. But, of course, President Moon is dealing with the fact that, as Professor Shin has already mentioned, North Korea has had three missile tests uh, I think just since his inauguration, uh, I'm not sure, and I, I, we can draw a relationship between the two, and I know there are many experts here, but my own sense is that these, these tests are happening on a schedule that has more to do with testing uh, and with developing capability than sending political messages, but of course they're received as political messages anyway. The other thing I learned while I was in Washington last week is, is that uh, uh, a study has been done, I'm glad people do studies on these, and it turns out that North Korea is most likely to have a missile test on a Monday. I always thought it was always on a Monday that happened to be an American holiday, because that was always my experience, but, but in fact there was a test on Monday, uh, Korea time, uh, as we know. 
And following that test, and this is kind of my last comment on, on, on President Moon, uh, is uh, uh, President Moon did have a phone conversation, 20-minute phone conversation, according to the Blue House, with uh, Japanese Prime Minister Abe. And the Blue House readout, I think is significant because it's coming from the Blue House, what they want to say about the call was this. President Moon agrees with Prime Minister Abe and said this, that now is not the time for dialogue for North Korea, but a time to heighten sanctions and pressure adding that the ultimate goal of sanctions and pressure is to bring Pyongyang back to negotiations on its complete denuclearization. That is, as much as I understand it, also still the stated policy of the Trump administration. Um, and, and again, from the Blue House, uh, adding, this is why the international community must, on the one hand, respond firmly, and on the other hand, continue to send the message that dialogue is possible if North Korea gives up its nuclear development. So I've already run over my time, uh, but in terms of U.S. ROK relations and U.S. policy, Kiyoko has already talked, I think, a little bit about the sort of um, uh, rather uh, incoherent at times uh, set of uh, statements that were made both during the campaign and afterwards about, about what uh, U.S. policy uh, 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 should be, might be towards North Korea, uh, as it is kind of settled to some extent. Uh, it seems to me it's quite similar uh, to the outlines of the policy that was pursued by the Obama administration and indeed by the Bush administration in its later days, notwithstanding the fact that, that, that um, strategic patience is over, uh, according to uh, the Trump administration. Uh, there has been a tension, which I certainly welcome, to uh, trying to reassure. Reassurance is always important, given some of the things that were said during the campaign. Uh, our uh, allies in Seoul, uh, uh, Secretaries Mattis, Tillerson have both been there, Vice President Pence, uh, Mr. Pompeo was there and uh, publicized, which is a little unusual, I think, uh, to reaffirm the close partnership and to put a real emphasis there and at the UN on so-called, as Mr. Tillerson says, turning up the dial on sanctions. Uh, we can talk more about what that might be like, uh, you know, great talk of secondary sanctions, which would have some impact on China, but also a great emphasis, and we saw this in President Trump's meeting with Xi Jinping, on getting China to do more. Yeah, not exactly a new idea to those of us who follow this for any length of time, but something that has been much em emphasized. President Moon will visit Washington uh, in just a few weeks, uh, a date sometime mid to late June for a meeting with President Trump. Uh, he may well argue for a South Korean track of engagement with North Korea uh, at the same time that the U.S. is cranking up the pressure as a kind of a, you know, a, a coordinated but dual-track approach. Um, I think his most important goal for this uh, uh, trip is going to be to establish a relationship with President Trump. Uh, South Korea has been a little bit kind of missing on the field for the last six months as it went through its own uh, a political crisis uh, and resolution. Uh, and I think that is that establishing a relationship, and I think his most important message may seem like a simple one, but I guess that's what I'll close with, and that is that this is the Korean Peninsula. U.S. policy on North Korea needs not only to kind of take into account South Korea, but in many ways it needs to include and go through Seoul. Okay, thanks, Kathy. Now let's uh, go to Jim. Great. Thank you, Kyuk and, and, and David and, and Scott also for... Um, organizing this panel and for inviting me and, and thank you to Catherine for doing the heavy lifting and for being patient with me in my sometimes delayed responses. Um, I'd like to provide a broader historical uh, sensibility um, in my remarks and also provide a, a North Korean perspective on two issues. Uh, first, 
on um, the uh, nuclear crisis, um, and second on the relationship between Pyongyang and Beijing. Um, we get so caught up in, in our own narrative of, of Kim Jong-un being mad and irrational, unpredictable, and determined to uh, strike the U.S. homeland with a, a nuclear-tipped ICBM that it's easy to overlook the fact that for the North, for the North Koreans, there is a genuine defensive rationale to their nuclear ambition. As odious as the regime may be, I think it's wrong not to give any credence to their security concerns. We tend to divide ourselves into hawks and doves when it comes to interpreting what drives North Korea's nuclear ambition. Hawks tend to focus more on, on psychological tendencies, extortionist motives, or revisionist intentions. Doves, by contrast, uh, believe North Korea feels threatened militarily, particularly uh, after the collapse of the socialist camp and the loss of, of their patron allies. Taking a longer-term historical perspective um, through an analysis of materials that, that I've obtained from the archives of North Korea's former communist allies uh, over the years, one can clearly see or, or clearly identify um, a sense of mistrust of a malign and, and predatory world that has been at the basis of North Korea's foreign and national security policies since really since the inception of the regime. Um, and, and this is toward, toward foe and friend alike. Um, it is not a new phenomenon. Uh, it is it, that, that emerged with, uh, as a result of, of North Korea's political and economic isolation. It's also not connected directly to the loss of their patron allies after the collapse of the socialist camp. For several decades now, North Korea has been a paranoid regime which believes that only, uh, that only the possession of nuclear weapons will guarantee their external security. Historical documents that, that I've, I've been able to work with, from again from former communist allies, reveal how key national security policies um, were impacted by U.S. actions around the world, by developments in South Korea, and by uh, the perceived lack of credibility of the Soviet Union and China. Uh, for example... Um, uh, the key national security policy promoted by Kim Jong-un today, the so-called Byung-jin line or the equal emphasis policy, uh, um, was introduced over five decades ago um, in response to the military coup that in South Korea that brought to power Pak Chang-hee. Um, one can even trace, or one could argue that, that you can trace the origins of, of Pyongyang's pursuit of a nuclear deterrent to the perceived unreliability of the, so the Soviet nuclear umbrella in the early 1960s. The North Koreans are also keen observers of global developments, and they draw important lessons uh, from the experiences of other authoritarian regimes. Uh, the lesson that North Korea learned from the Bush doctrine of democratic regime change is that the United States engages in, in preventive or preemptive wars against regimes it does not like and supports regime change in others, but only in countries that do not possess nuclear weapons. This was the case with Iraq, uh, which had an unrealized nuclear program, and Libya, where uh, the leader voluntarily abandoned its nuclear program uh, on a promise of improved relations with the West, only for Qaddafi to be executed in the street by NATO-backed rebels. Again, this is from North Korea's perspective. 
More recent actions by the United States in Syria um, have reinforced these lessons for the North Koreans. And many officials in the Trump administration uh, suggested that the recent Tomahawk missile strike in Syria and even the use of the mother of all bombs in, in Afghanistan were also signals to North Korea. And if you look at the, the, the statements of North Korean officials in the wake of these, these two uh, actions, it's they've received the message loud and clear. Uh, North Korea's response to the Syria raid was that it, that it, quote, proves a million times over, unquote, that they're right in developing a nuclear deterrent. Uh, North Korea's Vice Minister of Foreign Affairs, uh, Han Song-yeol, told the BBC, quote, we'll be conducting more missile tests on weekly, monthly, and yearly bases, end quote. So, we're trapped in a security dilemma with North Korea. Uh, while we are discouraging aggression through a show of strength, our, our actions reinforce their belief that they remain vulnerable. And, and just as Foreign Minister Han had promised, and, and, and as Ambassador Stevens mentioned, the pace of North Korea's missile tests has certainly escalated. But I, I, I would suggest that North Korea is also showing some restraint. Um, while satellite imagery shows that the, the Pungeri um, nuclear test site is primed and ready, they have not detonated a sixth nuclear device. And despite the recent flurry of, of ballistic mi missile tests, they have not tested an ICBM, despite having claimed that they possess the ability to do so already, although many estimates that I've seen from, from the U.S. suggest that they're still some ways off. Instead, the North Koreans have tested a, a series of, of uh, just in the past uh, three weeks now, they've tested a, a series of, of, of solid fuel two-stage IRBMs that, that contain ICBM subsystems. Uh, while these are indeed provocations, one could interpret these tests as North Korea signaling that they are stepping up to but not crossing the red line essentially drawn by President Trump when he announced via Twitter that North Korea's development of an ICBM, quote, won't happen. No solution to the ongoing standoff with North Korea is possible without direct engagement. The longer we allow our abhorrence for the regime to supersede our national interests by refusing to talk with them and to take more seriously their security concerns, the more likely it will be that North Korea proceeds with tests possibly including an ICBM in the, in the future, intensifying the security dilemma for the United States. Uh, time is not on our side. Um, the North Koreans are learning from every test, even from those that seem to fail. While denuclearization should remain Washington's long-term strategic objective, in the shorter term, Washington, I think, would be wise to consider a bold Nixon-style initiative that addresses... Pyongyang's security concerns directly in exchange for an indefinite freeze or halt to North Korea's nuclear and missile programs and for the return of inspectors. Uh, if it is rejected by Pyongyang, the United States would be better positioned to consider sterner measures, but I think we need to put this to a political test. But any measures... Uh, taken by the U.S. must be supported by South Korea, by the South Korean government, um, which, as, as Ambassador Stevens has uh, noted, is more favorably inclined to 
engagement with the DPRK. They should also be coordinated with China, which, which brings me now to the second issue I was asked to address, China's role and interests. While China should be in consulted, China should not be in the driver's seat. I think there is a fundamental misunderstanding about the relationship between Pyongyang and Beijing, and this misunderstanding of that relationship has, really has impacted U.S. policy toward North Korea since the late 1970s. Materials from the Carter administration suggest that as we were moving forward with the normalization of relations with the PRC, we determined that there was no intrinsic value to talking with the North Koreans directly. And so the Carter administration decided to let China deal with North Korea. And this has been more or less the default policy of the U.S. over the past three-plus decades. I and mean, there were occasions, as, as many people in the room know directly, or from their, their direct experience, when we did engage more directly. But the, the more or less default policy has been to rely on China's, what we believed to be China's influence. So I, we essentially outsourced our North Korea policy to China. But again, I, I think this was based on a fundamental misunderstanding of the relationship between Pyongyang and Beijing. Now, at the core of this misunderstanding was the question of how close the two regimes were and how much influence China had over North Korea. Now, there's no doubt today that, that China has greater economic leverage over North Korea than any other country. Between 85 and 90 percent of North Korea's foreign trade is with China. That gives China an enormous amount of material leverage over North Korea. Um, but there are clear limits to Beijing's willingness to use that material leverage to pressure Pyongyang through sanctions. If China were to more fully utilize its material leverage, it could bring North Korea to its knees, which is what the United States hopes to achieve. Uh, it could also bring about state collapse. But that won't happen. While Beijing's support for Pyongyang appears to be softening, China will not destabilize North Korea. China has its own interests on the Korean Peninsula that go back centuries, and those interests do not align with those of the United States. The Korean Peninsula has long posed a massive security problem for China, and you can't understand China's present-day approach to, to North Korea except against this background of, of, of uh, the history of Chinese concerns about the peninsula as a source of insecurity. Today, Chinese, China's leaders do not view the actions of, or view actions that destabilize North Korea as in their interests because of, of unpredictable potential outcomes. And no amount of pressure from the United States will alter this. They don't want to bring about state collapse on their border uh, and they don't want to deal with the messiness that would immediately accompany state collapse, including the, the massive refugees streaming across the border. And Chinese leaders don't necessarily want a, a, a Korean, or Korean unification if it means having on their border a U.S.-allied, unified Korean state. Chinese leaders, it seems, would, ra would sooner live with a nuclear North Korea than risk state collapse on their border and the loss of a buffer state. Now, while China does have material leverage through its trade with North Korea, China does not enjoy the ability to, at will, exercise political influence over North Korea. Historical materials that I've, I've looked at over the years reveal that there is a profound sense of mistrust at the basis of the relationship. 
North Korean leaders perceive China as being overly interventionist and not respectful of Korean sovereignty. And I'd be happy to, to discuss uh, some of the key episodes in the relationship in the Q&A if there's, if there's interest. But as a result of this mistrust, Chinese leaders do not have a free hand in North Korea. They can't simply pick up the phone and, and call Kim Jong-un and tell him to cut things out, something that, that President Trump believed possible until his meeting with uh, President Xi at, at Mar-a-Lago when, when he learned that things were more complicated. Uh, if we ask China to directly exercise political influence over North Korea, we are essentially asking China to do precisely what North Korea has most resented over the past six-plus decades, and it's only going to antagonize Pyongyang even further. This means that, that uh, uh, the United States needs to take a much more active role in dealing with North Korea, particularly since the regime uses its, the, the perceived existential threat uh, from Washington to justify its pursuit of, of a nuclear deterrent. And again, I think we will need to take seriously North Korea's security concerns, which historical materials reveal are not simply the justification of, of a madman hell-bent on securing a nuclear, on, on nuclear weapons, but have, at their, have been at the basis of North Korea's foreign and national security policies for nearly seven decades. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Jim. Uh, let's uh, finally go to uh, Kathy. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I'm delighted to be back at Stanford, and thank you for organizing this panel. I come from the humanitarian aid crowd, so 22 years of humanitarian aid to North Korea, where are we today? That's one topic, and then I will also talk a little bit about the impact of aid and the impact of sanctions. Let me start with that in March, the UN sent out the 2017 Needs and Priority Plan, asking for 114 million US dollars to meet the basic needs of 13 million vulnerable people in the DPRK. What are the issues today? Malnutrition. No longer famine, but chronic malnutrition is a major concern, driven by a lack of sufficient diverse food, inadequate health care, and poor access to water and sanitation services. External assistance plays an important role in safeguarding the lives of millions of people. Expectations on aid agencies are high, and so is the challenge with the severe lack of funding. An example, in 2016, for a similar program, the funding level was at 26% only. So US dollars, 44 millions were received to assist 13 million vulnerable North Koreans. And that means $3.38 per person. That doesn't go very far. During my recent visit to North Korea in April, I learned that some agencies might have to downsize further or even to withdraw because of the sharp decline in donations. So not a good picture. Has aid made a difference? 
monitoring aid brought me in touch with families, with doctors, hospital patients, farmers, teachers and children. And years ago, people were very reluctant to meet strangers. Even eye contact was avoided. By now, they are less fearful when dealing with foreigners, have become curious about our way of life, and some even dream of traveling abroad. Living standards of ordinary people have improved because of aid programs. A water tap in a family home does make a huge difference. Or an increased family income because they work at sloping land management programs. Then interactions are transforming relationships. Opinions of foreigners are changing. Information from abroad is impacting views and attitudes. During the famine years, of course, aid saved lives, many lives. By now, the overall living conditions have, I would call it, modestly improved. This is not so much due to aid interventions. Of course, they do play a role. But also because of the strong will and the resourcefulness of the local people. Then a certain empowerment to make decisions, be, in, be it in terms of participating in market activities or entrepreneurship, experimenting with authorized changing, changes in the farming policy, just to name a few crucial developments. Over the past years, Good working relationships with officials at different levels have been established. And with that, a certain amount of trust and openness. Today, problems and issues can be addressed much more directly and access for planning and monitoring purposes is less difficult. Moreover, and this is very important, DPRK officials are much more receptive to new ideas. In fact, at the recent NGO meeting in Washington, D.C., almost all of 18 U.S. NGO participating in the conference agreed that the working environment for NGOs in the DPRK has improved in recent years. But now to the sanctions and possible changes in Chinese trade with North Korea. The aim, as we heard before, the aim of the various sanctions is to pressure the Kim Jong-un regime to change its behavior by squeezing North Korea economically. UN and unilateral sanctions imposed on the DPRK exclude humanitarian assistance and should not influence aid project, in theory at least. From my recent visits to North Korea, I don't see sanctions having a direct effect in humanitarian terms on the general population yet. 
prices for rice and maize as well as the exchange rate have remained stable. Also, the longer the sanctions persist, the more likely they will impact the lives of ordinary North Korean people and increase hardship and hamper development. The most vulnerable people with disabilities, the sick, the elderly, women and children already feel the pinch. The level of humanitarian assistance is decreasing year by year, not only because of funding problems, but also because of nowadays a more complicated and lengthy procurement process and slow delivery. Then there are also rumors of new fees and charges for all sorts of services, and this hurts everybody. It's a downward chain to the poor, so the poor will suffer more. Another example, some factories in North Korea are having difficulties in purchasing raw materials with the result that there will be under unemployment. More people will have difficulties in making ends meet. More people will fall through an already very weak social safety net. When I was there in April, Chinese traders were still very much active in the country. It remains to be seen what impact the restrictions on North Korea's coal export to China will have. Is punishment the sole goal of Beijing's coal ban? Some experts I spoke to felt that, if enforced, it will indeed squeeze the regime's revenues. But it should also be seen as a gesture by Beijing to the new US administration. But back to aid agencies. How do we feel the sanctions? A few examples. Donors are very reluctant to provide funds for projects in North Korea, especially companies, because it cannot appear on any document that they are involved in North Korea. Or banking channels do no longer exist, and it's almost impossible to transfer funds for daily operational costs or even paying Chinese suppliers. This, despite the provision for dispensation for humanitarian activities. And cash operations are undesirable and risky. Then delays in procurement are common due to additional requirements for licensing and the need to ensure that the equipment or the supplies are not on any sanction list. Another point I feel strongly about North Korean companies that used to operate according to international standards have been pushed to the gray zone, and I don't think that's a healthy development. The biggest impact, however, is the fact that there is, because of the political situation, no development cooperation with North Korea. By linking relief, rehabilitation, and gradually also development assistance, a stronger impact for enhancing the welfare of the general public could be achieved. With some DPRKH programs, the first two steps have been taken, and I think that's a commendable effort. But let me also add, 
it is now widely acceptable that the compartmentalization between humanitarian aid, which should be short-term, and development cooperation, which is long-term, is artificial as far as poor people themselves are concerned. Personally, I would also see development cooperation perhaps as a carrot, as we often talk of carrots and sticks. In closing, one question I'm asked all the time, has it changed in the 20 years you have been going there, this North Korea? Yes and no, but it's certainly no longer the country I experienced in 1995. And some years I created the term the five M's, and these M's are still very valid. They include the fact that markets and money are playing a much bigger role in the daily lives of ordinary people. Mobile phones have become a very common form of communication. Motor cars have increased, and lastly, in Pyongyang, but also in other cities, there is a small middle class developing. Today, I would even add another M, and that is that mindsets, particularly among the younger generation in Pyongyang, are changing. So in closing, from my viewpoint, pressure and sanctions will not solve the problem on the Korean Peninsula. In fact, sanctions frequently increase the resolve or determination of the country being targeted by sanctions, both at government level and among ordinary people. I am convinced that only engagement offers a chance to address issues in a constructive and peaceful way. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, I'm going to uh, start our conversation by asking one question to each panelist, and then I'll open up uh, to the floor. So let me start with uh, Kathy about uh, South Korean policy uh, towards North Korea. You know, obviously he's only in three weeks. I mean, you know, once he uh, assumed the power. So then maybe a little too early to say anything uh, definite. But I think there are, uh, I think, two views about uh, North Korea policy by the Moon government. Okay, one view is that uh, he might more or less uh, repeat uh, sunshine policy uh, of uh, Kim Dae-jung and, and Noh Moo-hyun. About two years ago, I presented at a public hearing at the National Assembly about uh, North Korea policy. And at the time, uh, Mr. Moon was a member, and he was basically saying that, you know, Kim Dae-jung and the government uh, made a lot of progress in inter-Korea relations. But then uh, once uh, Lee Myung-bak came into power, and they basically all destroyed uh, any progress. So, you know, one indication is that, you know, he might go back to Sunshine policy, like Sunshine 2. Uh, on the other hand, uh, things have changed a lot. Uh, <clears throat> once again, uh, North Korea tested uh, multiple uh, nuclear weapons. And then also, you know, he may have learned some lessons uh, from the previous 
progressive government. So rather than uh, pursuing sunshine too, you know, he might pursue his own, you might say, moonlight uh, policy toward North Korea. So is it going to be sunshine 2.0 or moonlight? And either way, is it going to create any friction or tension with the Trump administration? <laughs> Uh, well, my uh, my crystal ball is always cloudy, um, but uh, I I think if we look at at President Moon's own own political pedigree, the things that have have shaped uh, you know his his career and his thinking, and the people he's brought into into the government, um, I think they are. I think they remain proud of what they tried to do, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, feeling that. Um, uh, particularly uh, in in building some lines of uh, communication and assistance uh, between North and South, that they uh, did something that is 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 a legacy, a great legacy of those two presidencies, and they want to build on. Um, at the same time, uh, I think they are also very mindful, and particularly with. Um, uh, with a, a new administration in Washington that is very unpredictable, um, that they, they, they need to take this step by step. Uh, and I think that's what we've seen in these three weeks, uh, is uh, a focus on trying to reinforce some of the traditional pillars of the alliance and uh, try to build a relationship with President Trump and take it from there. But uh, I, yeah, I, I imagine that, that President Moon will want to... Uh, uh, discuss with uh, President Trump and with others in the U.S. administration why Seoul needs to play um, a, a rather differentiated role. I don't know if he would put it that way, but I think something like that. And I just, I, I sort of wonder if he will, I, I doubt that he's going to revive the, the, the use of the word sunshine. Uh, I think that that probably doesn't make a lot of sense, but uh, but certainly he can, as I said, respect the legacy and carry it on. Um, I mean, the two things that have changed uh, most, I think, in North Korea, well, I mean, and, and Kathy has mentioned some of them in terms of some economic changes, uh, uh, a differing relationship with China, uh, but also you do have in a, uh, a new leader in Kim Jong-un who uh, we don't know very well. He's been in power now for almost six years, and he has not traveled outside of North Korea. He has essentially met with, you know, almost no mm -hmm. foreigners, leaders or others. Uh, it's, it, some people think one of the reasons is because of his age, you know, and Korea, it really matters who's older than whom, uh, but he's in, he's in his early thirties. But I think that it's, um, it's a different, it's a generational change that, uh, that South Korea will have to take into account. And of course, the other issue I think is, it is, is the nuclear issue and the way that that has, uh, really, um, shifted over, uh, since No Mo Hyun was in power. Uh, I mean, when when Nomi Hyun left office, uh, there had been a test, maybe two tests, nuclear tests, uh, but the uh, the six party talks were still kind of you know stumbling along, uh, and there was the uh, joint statement of principles, uh, which did uh, reflect an effort to work with the United States and China to address the security concerns of North Korea. Because I agree on the importance of that, but I think that has become even more difficult to think about how you do that uh, absent, if it is uh, uh, 
acknowledging, recognizing, uh, acquiescing in uh, uh, North Korea's uh, desire to be uh, considered a, a nuclear weapon state. Uh, so I think that's going to be very difficult for him. Okay, thank you. Uh, so this is for Jim. So you mentioned about uh, our misunderstanding of China's influence on North Korea, which I agree. And I guess uh, we're not only people uh, who believe believe that uh, we, we, we sometimes we misunderstand uh, Chinese influence on North Korea. But then one has to wonder why then uh, U.S. government has continued to press China to make an influence on North Korea. Is it because of uh, misunderstanding or misperception of China's role, or there's no viable alternative to outsourcing to China? Well, great question. Uh, and I, I have asked many people why we continue to believe um, China has holds all the cards, but um, haven't gotten a, a great answer. Um, I, uh, many people just keep going back to the to the the narrative of of uh, well you know the chinese helped the the koreans during the korean war they sa mm -hmm. they saved north korea from being wiped off the face of the map but um you know and i i'd like to remind them that a lot has happened uh, or a lot can happen in you know succeeding decades and you know we're talking over six decades now um and there are countless incidents where, as I mentioned, the North Koreans feel that the Chinese were being overly interventionist or, or not respectful of Korean mm -hmm. sovereignty, starting with the Korean War. Mm -hmm. um, the, 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 the North Koreans look at, at Chinese actions during the Korean War as uh, they, they were not comfortable with, with a foreign military apparatus coming in, taking over control of field operations. And there were dis well-known disputes over the use of railroads, for example, mm -hmm. during the Korean War. Um, where the Chinese essentially told the North Koreans they could not use their trains for reconstruction. Mm -hmm. and, and so the trains were standing still and became easy targets for American bombers. Um, just shortly after the war, you see Soviet reports talking about the North Koreans holding this, this bitter resentment toward the Chinese, and, um, blaming the Chinese for not allowing you know offenses to continue and not for not mm -hmm. kicking the Americans off the off the peninsula. Um, within three years of the Korean War, you had this major incident, domestic political incident, and and China directly interfered mm -hmm. um, by dispatching um, uh, Peng Dehui, who was the commander of the Chinese People's Volunteers, and there's no question about it, they directly meddled in North Korean affairs. Um, in this incident, um, the Cultural Revolution is is another period in uh, where the North Koreans will turn back to and and mm -hmm. and identify you know tense moments. I mean, tense moments is perhaps the understatement of the century here. There were there were essentially there were border clashes, um, uh, military clashes on on the border in the vicinity of Pekdu Mountain. You had uh, Chinese Red Guards rounding up ethnic Koreans in Manchuria. Um, executing them and sending them across the border on trains um, uh, with little notes attached to them saying, this is going to happen to you next, you little revisionist. Chinese troops entered North Korean territory. Um, there were, uh, the, North, the, the Chinese were openly criticizing Kim Il-sung, calling him a fat revisionist um, because uh, he was straddling the fence in the Sino-Soviet split. Um, 
1980, uh, you have another incident where the Chinese openly oppose Kim Jong or Kim Jong Il's succession to the mm -hmm. leadership. Mm -hmm. Now, up to the late 19th century, of course, it was the right of the Chinese emperor to confer legitimacy on a Korean monarch. But for the North Koreans in 1980, it was unconscionable that China felt that it had the authority to, to express an opinion on who would succeed. Um, so there is a profound sense of mistrust that goes back decades um, at, the, in, at the basis of the relationship. Um, and again, I just don't know if it's because we don't study history well or, 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 or apply the lessons of history well. But uh, we, we got it wrong in the late 1970s when we made the decision in the U.S. that there was no intrinsic value to dealing with the North Koreans directly and decided mm -hmm. to outsource, mm -hmm. outsource that policy mm -hmm. or our North Korea policy mm -hmm. to, to China. Um, but that, for the, for the better part of the last three-plus decades, mm -hmm. has been the, the go-to policy. Um, and, and, but I, I'm hoping... I'm fairly optimistic that, that that's changing. Mm -hmm. um, your eyebrows raised there. I know, you know. I guess you're not so optimistic. But it's interesting to see to see how um, uh, you know, when I release these historical materials, these conversations between North Korean officials and and other communist leaders, where the North Koreans are are saying repeatedly over the decades, "We don't trust China," and here's yeah. why: one, two, three, four, five. You know, at first, when I started releasing these materials, to see people, you know, to sh share these with, with, with officials in Washington, they're like, well, I don't know about this. Yeah. But now people are, are, are okay. accepting these and looking at these materials. And, yeah, there is this mistrust in the, rela in the relationship. We understand now. So hopefully okay. we'll begin to see some changes. Okay, great. Okay, Kathy, uh, I love your uh, concept of 5M. You know, mobile, <laughs> motor, money, market, middle class now. Adding six now six m in a mindset. So, what will be uh, overall or long term impact of these five m's or six m's? Sorry, uh, I couldn't. What are overall or long term impact of those five m's or six m's on North Korea? Well, I think the long term impact is really the last m that mindsets mm -hmm. are changing because. Especially with North Koreans now having mobile telephones, mm -hmm. the communication flow among themselves has increased so much that quickly they can call their relatives on the other side of the country and tell them what's happening. Mm -hmm. This was not possible some mm -hmm. years ago, mm -hmm. so that makes a huge difference. But of course, a lot depends what happens next in terms of aid programs in terms of north-south relationships mm -hmm. and of course the US too mm -hmm. and I do think uh, we need to look at long-term assistance and not just short-term and then I think the five M's will increase also in other parts of the country now mm -hmm. you see in some cities developments for example on my visit last October in a small town, I saw taxi services. Or on my recent travel up to Zinuchu, I noticed farmhouses now also have solar panels. So there is more money floating around, people have more money, so the more marketization I think, the more this will happen. But then it's also how much will be um, 
permitted from the North Korean regime. You know, I think it can only go as far as they feel comfortable with. But so far, I do see a step-by-step -step positive development. Okay. Okay, so thank you. Uh, we have about 20 minutes, so I'd like to open to the floor. So if you can identify yourself uh, briefly, also, you know, uh, make comments or questions. And if you want to direct to any specific panelist, uh, that's fine. See, So I see Don Emerson. So Don, what did you say uh, who you are? Yeah. Emerson, Southeast Asia program, Southeast Asia, so I know very little about North Korea. Forgive me. Well, Malaysia, North Korea. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Um, if I try to read between the lines and come out with some kind of a U.S. policy recommendation from the panel, and forgive me if I'm distorting what you've said, uh, I reach the following conclusion, that you have presented implicitly a devastating critique of Donald Trump's approach to the North Korean issue. And I have in mind particularly the transactionalism that is so evident in his effort to deal with China, in effect by saying, look, if you help us on North Korea, then maybe we'll go easy on your violation of economic rules, right? So we can have more jobs in the United mm -hmm. States. Uh, if you help us on North Korea, then maybe we will tolerate your primacy in the South China Sea. Now, admittedly, there was a Freedom of Navigations operation that was run off Mr. Reef just a couple of days ago, but I think the conventional wisdom there is that this does not portend a hardening of U.S. policy. It's an effort, essentially, to enable Secretary Mattis on the 2nd of June in Singapore at the Shangri-La Dialogue to project an image of reassurance, which essentially would be a false image from Trump's own standpoint. So if transactionalism doesn't work, if it's not checkers, if it's chess, then what is the alternative? And ironically, in a way, I'm driven to a different version of transactionalism. <laughs> namely a bilateral negotiation directly between the uh -huh. United States and North Korea. Uh -huh. And if that were sort of lurking on the margins of what you've said, then my question would be specifically what would we trade for what? Uh -huh. Great question. Um, some would argue that... that um, some, some, I think, would argue that, that this is... that there is an a need to try to get China to do more than it has done in the past. And this is something that we have not fully uh, tried to do yet. Um, and, and that uh, um, perhaps this, this transactionalism uh, in dealing with, with China, using the, the tremendous amount of leverage that the U.S. has through its trade with China to get China to, to ramp up its pressure will um, will we'll perhaps achieve that. I'm less confident for the reasons that I say that I, I, I do not think that uh, China will uh, use the amount of, of pressure necessary. I think it's, it's, they will use a minimum amount of pressure uh, to please the United States, but they will, n but again, because our, our interests on the peninsula are so fundamentally different, um, I, I don't expect China to do uh, nearly enough to to achieve the goal of bringing North Korea to the negotiating table, you know, getting them to cry uncle uh, after having their arms twisted behind their back and, and, and returning to the negotiating table. Certainly not in the timetable that we hope um, uh, for this to happen. Um, and as I noted, I think time is not on our side. I think it does require um, a different type of transactionalism uh, that would include direct negotiations 
Although, again, to stress, I think South Korea needs to be mm -hmm. consulted mm -hmm. um, the entire time. Um, uh, and, and, and what would we trade? Well, um, we in the past, we did halt our uh, joint military exercises with South Korea uh, uh, to some effect. Um, uh, we, we might consider that again. Um, uh, but I, I, again, I just I think we need to take seriously North Korea's security concerns, and and we have been escalating our um, exercises, uh, including I think just last year a so-called decapitation scenario, um, which sends a, I think a very clear signal to the North Koreans. Um, so this is something that we may trade in in, in exchange for in the short term a freeze. Um, uh, but again, the long-term goal should ultimately be denuclearization. Yeah, I mean, just very briefly, I I, I think it's actually perhaps a, a positive sign. I'm trying to, be, I'm trying to be positive here that the Trump administration does not seem to be uh, uh, ideologically or uh, have uh, opposed to bilateral negotiations mm -hmm. with anybody. Um, I think there should, I agree, there should be some kind of bilateral discussion. We should start it somehow. What are the details? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think there can be some confidence-building measures. I'm very skeptical that we will ever give North Korea the kind of security guarantees, uh, you know, that will uh, uh, convince it that it doesn't need a nuclear program anymore. You know, we've tried. We really mm -hmm. have tried to. Uh, but I think we can, again, with the new administration in Washington, uh, be a little more open the aperture, Exercises, I mean, are, you know, don't have to be taboo. I, obviously, I think we need to have military preparedness, but we can look at things. Sanctions are something, too. So the, the point of, of sanctions, I think, is, is it's a tool. Uh, and, and the tool is, is to, uh, to get a negotiation going. It's part of diplomacy. It's not part of punishment, at least in principle. So, so yes, there, what does North Korea have to give back? This is where you get into, clearly, they're in a different place now with their programs than they were 10 years ago. The progress towards you know, denuclearization is going to be a much, much, much longer road mm -hmm. and winding road. Uh, but I still think there has to be a theoretical notion that there is a road there. Uh, and that it will take time, and as many things do in life and in diplomacy, we have to pursue it. I mean, I, and, and China, I think we've already kind of covered that. I, yeah, I, I too, think this uh, uh, reliance on China, there are some historical reasons for it. Maybe there's just sometimes I, I used to think that maybe, you know, we looked at China and North Korea the way that China looked at us and, and South Korea, like we should just be able to get them to do whatever we want in <laughs> South Korea. And a predecessor of mine, Bill Gleistein, was U.S. ambassador in the late 90s, early uh, 80s, and his memoir was called uh, uh, Massive Engagement, Marginal Influence. Uh, and actually, that's kind of what the Chinese say to us about North Korea for a kind of whole variety of... doesn't mean that they're kind of off the hook, but I think, as James also pointed out, we have to think carefully, where are our interests shared in, 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 in Korea and where are they not? And if you go to the other extreme, which actually I've seen in some of the commentary, that's something in the Times today, actually, by Graham Allison, basically just saying, you know, let China remake Korea, you know, in a reunified Korea kind of the way it wants, and we're done with it. Uh, I don't think that works well for the Koreans, uh, the South Koreans or the North Koreans, and I don't think it well, works well for Japan or for the United States. So I think that's another kind of thinking outside the box is good, but there's let's let's think again. <laughs> the Asan Institute in uh, Seoul regularly publishes public opinion polls about South Koreans' um, desire among the public to acquire nuclear weapons, and it's gone way up. 
Um, any comments about how the Trump presidency influences mm. that and how the South Korean elections mm -hmm. may cut and push it in the other direction? Mm -hmm. Right. Well, um, of course, uh, uh, Mr. Trump as a candidate said on a number of occasions that uh, he was open to the notion of South Korea and Japan obtaining nuclear weapons as part of their making a greater contribution to their own defense. He has since walked back from those statements. Uh, but it did fan um, uh, a renewed interest, uh, in fact, again, historically, and James knows this better than I, but uh, South Korea uh, in the 1970s under President Park Chung-hee uh, had a covert nuclear weapons program. Uh, in large part in response to their sense of insecurity because of the Nixon-Guam doctrine and then the, uh, uh, the defeat in Vietnam. Uh, so, yeah, this is not a new thought. Uh, and, uh, but I think it's unlikely under President Moon that, that he would go in that direction. Uh, South Korea has an enormous uh, civilian nuclear program, as you know, and one that they want to export, in a way, mm -hmm. to the world. Uh, and they want to be a, you know, a card-carrying member of the global, the international community on these issues. Um, the other issue, of course, that's sometimes raised is, um, uh, is the redeployment of U.S. so-called tactical mm -hmm. nuclear weapons to the Korean Peninsula. Uh, some of this, I think, is re just reassurance. Uh, but there is a there is a desire, uh, and it's important to keep that in mind on the part of a large part of the Ameri of the Korean South Korean public for uh, greater reassurance. And they start to feel insecure about. I mean, you know, North Korea has its security issues. Right, right, South Korea has right, right. got its security issues. And if they start to feel uncomfortable with uh, uh, the uh, uh, the the steadfastness of of the United States. Uh, these kinds of ideas would get more credence. Okay. <clears throat> the speakers haven't addressed directly what description of rationality to North Korea and their conception of history should lead them to give up the question of nuclear weapons and it doesn't the retention of nuclear weapons, what would the ascription of rational interest be, and what conception of history would you want to ascribe to them, or hope they would endorse selectively, that should lead them to this action that you desire? And in answering, keep in mind that those of us in the U.S. are somewhat like oligopolists who don't want a new entrant to an oligopolist structure of the world. Mm -hmm. No oligopolist ever encourages other oligopolists. <laughs> the nature of oligopolists. Yeah. No, I think you, you, you've, you've uh, described very well why I think it's so difficult. Uh, North Korea has now, I'm more reinforcing your point than answering it, but uh, uh, North Korea has now uh, included in its constitution the notion that it is, it is a nuclear weapon state. Mm -hmm. Uh, North Koreans have said to U.S. officials, and I think, to, and, and to others who have, who have met them, that, uh, and this is, this is, I mean, over the last several years, that they would, they see the scenario for them as being something, something like it is for India, that uh, you know, with time, you'll get used to it, uh, and uh, you will, you know, and, and we will recognize them. And I use my little air quotes here as a as a de facto nuclear state, and be able to normalize relations on that basis. Um, how do we persuade them that um, that we're not going to do that? I think for now it's 
very difficult. I think they think we may do it mm-hmm. <laughs> if they can just mm-hmm. if they can just tough it out. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where you get into the notion that that you know uh, that that just by tightening sanctions, by making it impossible for them to continue this, that they will then have to make a you know what you, previous administration called a strategic decision. Mm-hmm. But I think so far we haven't you know we haven't gotten to that that pain threshold uh, to make them consider that. And, and, and to get them to that pain threshold, I, Kathy and I were talking earlier. Um, I, frankly, and I think we both agreed, um, sanctions are uniquely ineffective in many ways against North Korea because they've done such a very good job of insulating themselves over the years. They've um, essentially been living under sanctions-like conditions, for better or for worse, since the since 1953, uh, the end of the, uh, with the Korean War armistice, they've um, done a remarkable job over the years of, of um, uh, mobilizing indigenous human and material resources uh, to compensate for the lack of outside, outside goods. Um, they are willing to let a segment of the population perish, and, and in this case, it's, it's the, the uh, you know, as you mentioned, the, the poorer um, uh, people um, in North Korea before they allow sanctions to really impact the, the regime or the uh, vital interests of the regime, and that meaning the, the uh, Kim family and the patronage network that, that supports it. Um, and then, of course, they enjoy the, the protection of, of China. So, I mean, it, it's going to take a lot longer for North Korea to make that, or to be forced to, or to feel that pinch to, to, where they're forced to make that strategic um, decision to either, you know, uh, abandon or, or, um, or at least return to negotiations uh, to, uh, with the U.S. To, to, or with the international community to consider abandoning the nuclear program. Okay, so we don't have much time left, so let's collect maybe two or three questions. Thanks for listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. Follow us on Twitter at FSI Stanford or visit our website at fsi.stanford.edu for more events and expertise from the world of international studies. <laughs>